antiquarian adventures in meta reality reality Banned books, the banning of books by the church, the state and the tech industry. The Book of Magic held in the hands of the sorcerer as they stand within the circle of art is a potent and evocative image. The magical book, however, was a very real historical phenomena. It's hard to define a typical magical text. They're generally collections of charms, spells and rituals intended for the use of practitioners in the magical arts as a kind of instruction manual. Their contents vary from dealing with the everyday, such as love spells and spells of healing or vengeance, to the deeply spiritual, and on the surface some of them may seem to be curiously amoral, but through them there runs a spiritually democratising thread. The idea that the creative forces of the universe do not belong to God or the gods alone but with the proper knowledge and instruction, they may be wielded by anyone. Magical texts such as the Greco-Egyptian papyri have been around since antiquity, but one could argue that the fully-fledged magical books or the grimoires begin with the Picatrix in the 10th century, leading on to the works attributed to Albertus Magnus in the 13th century, a flurry of works around the 15th century. Trimetheus, Agrippa, the Key of Solomon, etc., followed by a host of other works, all claiming great antiquity, but most of them going back to the 16th, 17th and 18th century. These books do turn up sporadically as evidence in the witch trials of the Middle Ages and in the early modern period, but bearing in mind their apparent ubiquity and handiness as physical evidence, it's not as common as one would imagine. There are exceptions to this, of course. In the Icelandic witch trials, about a third of the accused was said to be in possession of some kind of magical text. Persecution and criminalisation of the producers and distributors of the said books, however, in terms of writers, publishers and printers and booksellers, for example, seem to be surprisingly conspicuous by their absence. One point in history when this began to radically change was with the Catholic Church's formation of the heresy-hunting Holy Office, or as it was more popularly known, the Inquisition. Books had been banned since its inception in the 13th century, most notably the Jewish texts, spurred on by the fear of Jewish converts returning to their original beliefs, because many of them had been converted at the sword point. And in 1557, Pope Pius V founded the Index Librorum Prohibitorum, or the Index of Prohibited Books 
primarily as a response to the emerging Protestant-dominated printing industry. Needless to say that many magical books were swept away in its wake. Lull, Paracelsus, Agrippa, Trimetheus, to name a few. But in 1573, the sheer volume of seized magical text was becoming unmanageable and the Holy Office began to order the burning of books. The index remained in operation with continual amendments right up until 1966. And that was one year after the Inquisition itself was dissolved and rebooted in the form of the Sacred Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. There must have been pressure on publishers not to produce these magical texts. In spite of their popularity, their production was at best sporadic. In mainland Europe, various presses did seem to produce magical books, perhaps reaching a peak in France in the mid-18th century with what became known as the Blue Books or Livre Bleu, the most famous of which was the Petit Albert, which reached a wide distribution amongst the French peasantry. In Britain, the printing of magical books was practically non-existent. One exception to this was between the 1790s and 1840, being John Denley, who set up an occult bookshop in Catherine Street in London's Covent Garden, where he famously made a living by hand-copying grimoires to order. In the New World in the 19th century, however, it was a different story. Magical books of spells and charms, such as the 6th and 7th books of Moses and the book of St Cyprian, were being openly printed and sold on a huge scale. De Lawrence was busy republishing any magical text he could get his hands on and distributing them to the magic-hungry world. Even his catalogues became to be considered a magical text in their own right. In 1820, John George Homan, author of the spell book The Long Hidden Friend, writes, I'm willing that my books should be seen by everyone, and I shall not be secret or hide from any preacher. I, Homan, too have some knowledge of the scriptures, and know when to pray and when to call for the Lord's assistance. The publication of books, provided they are useful and morally right, and are not prohibited by the United States, as in the case of other countries where kings and despots hold tyrannical sway over the people. It seems ironic that the country that held liberty and freedom so dear to its heart has now embraced the very despotism it sought to escape from. In 1982, the American Library Association started the band Books Week, of which this programme was originally part of, as a response to the federal and government authorities' widespread banning of books and texts.
But back in Old Blighty, one example of the repression of books, which primarily intrigues me, is the case of Mary Ann South's suggestive in inquiry into the Hermetic Mysteries. Mary Ann South was the daughter of Thomas South. He was a gentleman of independent means who had built up a vast library of hermetic, alchemical, philosophical and mystical works, to the study of which he had devoted his life. Mary Ann had begun life in helping her father with cataloguing and secretarial work in his library, but quickly developed her father's single-minded thirst for the mysteries and became a partner in his studies. She had also developed an interest in mesmerism. She saw that hypnotic techniques and manipulation of psychic ether could have a mystical spiritual dimension. She began to fuse elements of this with Neoplatonism, Hermeticism and alchemy. She and her father agreed that they needed to publish their work. They both confined themselves to separate rooms. Father embarked on an epic poem of a hermetic nature, whilst she set to work on a prose treatise of her work. In 1850, she finished her work first and, without reading it, her father sent it to the publisher. On the book's arrival back from the publisher, the both of them seemed to have had some kind of meltdown and burned the entire print run along with Thomas South's still unfinished manuscript on a bonfire in the garden. The reasons for this were unclear. Was this a sudden attack of Protestant religious zeal or was this father's jealousy over his daughter's work or was it a genuine fear that they had revealed too much of the sacred mysteries to an unready world in this strange tale in which the author repressed her own book only questions remain after remaining buried for nearly 70 years it did eventually emerge in 1918, shortly after the death of Mary Ann South, the book was eventually republished after its original publication in 1850. Walter L. Wilmshurst wrote an introduction to the new edition, which was nearly as turgid and impenetrable as the book itself. Still, the reasons for its initial destruction and as to how or why it came to eventually see the light of day remain unclear. It has, however, become an inspiration to figures as diverse as Carl Jung and Israel Rigardi, and even inspired the 1982 novel The Chemical Wedding by Lindsay Clark. Maybe there is something intrinsic to the nature of magical texts, as with some mystical texts. Perhaps they were never intended to be for mass circulation. Their power lay in their self-generating exclusivity. Folklore gives us grim warnings of the dealing with such magical books. Cornish legend tells of the chaos that ensued when servants peeked into the pages of the forbidden tomes, whilst their sorcerer masters, often members of the clergy, were otherwise occupied. Breton legend tells of the Agrippa, with its human skin binding. Once it is used, it will follow its owner to the grave. In Jersey, similar tales are told of the Petiel bear. In fact, in 2016, while researching the said grimoire, after requesting the Petiel bear from the library store, the librarian in the main Jersey library refused to actually touch the book, 
sliding it off the back of another book with the use of a ruler onto my desk. Maybe there's something almost self-editing inherent in their nature. Up until the 1990s, it was almost impossible to acquire copies of the grimoires. Times have moved on and now the world of publishing has opened up to the idea of magical books and many of the old magical texts are being republished in a variety of wild and wonderful editions. The reason for the reticence to publish magical texts in the past has been at best disinterest or at worst the fact that they're felt to be somehow inherently dangerous unleashing evil powers in the world, or that the practices they promote are bloodthirsty and barbaric. But a cursory look at most of the magical texts to see this is nonsense. Maybe the real fear comes from the fact that many of the magical texts are there to promote a sense of empowerment and independence beyond the powers of church and state. With both the historical repression of magical books and the witch persecutions, it's tempting to create a stereotypical scenario in which this empowered victim is an arbitrary repressed by a despotic authority figure from outside their community. As we have seen, the more one looks into either phenomena, they seem to become more and more complex and ambiguous. The question of who is the good guy and who's the baddie and who's on whose side and where the power lies remains a permanently shifting ground. A present example of this can be seen in the United States with the high-profile banning of various texts believed to be of occult nature. These include the popular children's fictional Harry Potter books of J.K. Rowling. These have been primarily instigated by an evangelical ultra-Protestant Christian group known as the Illil Ministries, who believe the world to be inhabited with evil spirits and have coined the term spiritual warfare to describe their own particular brand of evangelism. They may have enormous assets and friends in high places, but what on the surface appears to be a state-sponsored programme of book banning could just as equally be seen as one fringe group with occult beliefs attacking another fringe group which may or may not have occult leanings. It's too easy to fall into the trap of looking at banning of books as, as happening on a state-sponsored mass scale, as with the Nazi book burnings of the 1930s or the repression of the Inquisition in the Middle Ages. It could be argued there is a far more insidious wave of book banning going on under our very noses. Ironically, what is often in, instigated on a macro level is actually implemented on a micro level. The methods of controlling access to books may come in unexpected guises. The elephant in the room which looms over the matter, which is so large we rarely even see it, is the spectre of the tech industry and its unregulated digitisation of our culture. The spread of the tech industry presents itself as being common sense, neutral, liberating and a historical inevitability. Make no mistake, it's a consumer product of which its dissemination is both economically and ideologically driven, and one inevitable casualty of its spread is the humble book. The book is a physical object which requires the reader to acquire, handle and read its contents. It's this logistical process which requires perseverance and a particular mindset and an equally particular skill set for the reader to engage 
as libraries and publishers alike begin to adopt digital means of reproducing, storing and controlling access to books, the very act of digitisation itself begins to remove the reader from the book. And worst of all, begins to impose its own tacit form of book banning. Constantly, new formats of digitisation emerge, all with promises of improving quality and access. But in reality, access to books becomes increasingly limited to an elite with the relevant equipment and know-how. To access these digital formats and the literature imprisoned within them, one must buy the appropriate products and quite literally buy into the expanding grasp of the tech industry. He gave birth to it, he loves it, 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 probably hates it even more. That mass of circuits, my dear fellow, is as revolutionary as nuclear fission. No more wastage in schools, no more tedious learning by rote. A brilliantly devised course, delivered by a leading teacher, subliminally learned, checked, and corrected by an infallible authority. And what have we got? A row of cabbages. Knowledge, 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 to put the ghost of the in the The ghost of the in the Many universities, school and public libraries are disappearing. Ironically, it is only in prison where digital access is strictly limited that libraries are on the rise. We are led to believe that the book has been superseded by the internet. We're always told it's all on the net. But readers of the books know that this is absurd and an untrue statement. 
The proliferation of homogenised, pre-digested muck information on the net bears no similarity to what I see in the books around me. This is in no way a service to help us. Perhaps the most insidious aspect of this process of digitisation is the fact that it is a purely economic and commercial phenomena. To put it bluntly, each time you engage with the computer, someone somewhere buys your clicks. It is then fed back to you to modify your behaviour so as to engage you more, thus to make more money for someone in Silicon Valley. This is not a wild and wacky conspiracy theory. This is the basic digital business model. The internet is not about quality, it's about quantity. It's about getting us blindly pecking for corn like pigeons in a Skinner box. The digital marketplace is not a level playing field. It has instigated a red and tooth and claw winner-takes-all capitalist model. As Napster decimated the music industry and Instagram destroyed the photography industry for the financial benefit of a few, so the opening of Amazon.com in the mid-90s closed in on the publishing industry. By 2005 in the UK, we were reduced to 3,000 independent bookshops. By 2014, only a 1,000 remained. Now, there's even fewer. And in addition to this, in 2004, Amazon began what it called the Gazelle Project, in which they deliberately targeted small publishers by isolating and undercutting them. And these were the very people who produced the most interesting and most radical material. But the digital control of books is something far more elusive than just being inherent in the logistics of its operation. From the Middle Ages onwards, the gatekeepers of knowledge and the books that held that knowledge was the church. From the Enlightenment onwards, this role was taken over by the universities. They were not just controllers of facts, but definers of what was held to be truth and how we actually saw the world. This role has slid, almost without us noticing it, into the hands of the unelected, unaccountable and anonymous tech industry. As with the universities and the church, any rational questioning of the tech industry on ideological or ethical grounds is considered inconceivable and is either marginalised, ridiculed or repressed. It is seen as irrational and irrelevant and clearly just the result of evil or error on the part of the critic. Times don't change. In a society where the popularist media of subjugation and exploitation becomes the norm, it's not surprising that magical texts become marginalised. There's the rub. It's not the church or the state or even the tech industry who have been the main repressors of our magical literature, and indeed much of our radical literature. It's us. Interest and apathy. We've all become complicit. Better means of controlling and banning books than not to, just to stop them at their source but to erode our desire and ability to read. At the time of writing, the average reading age of the UK is nine. Satnav has made us spatially illiterate. Social media has made us socially illiterate. And now the internet has just made us illiterate. Maybe the uncomfortable truth of the situation is that 
to understand the nature of both the banning of magical books and the witch trials with which it coexisted, indeed the impact of the tech industry on our modern day access to literature is that we first need to understand and acknowledge our own part in the process. It was in the days of the Inquisition, so it still remains today. It is acts of resistance one can do. The tech industry is to pick up a book and read it. regarded as the truth is not the world of science the fiction that is our truth
was a quarry studio production made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in West Cornwall. Words, music, sounds and production, Steve Patterson. Engineering, editing, production and additional voice, Dave Wisdom. Additional voice, website design and brainwaves, Lisa Wisdom. If you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarian adventures in meta reality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian Antiquarian adventures in meta reality.